You're listening to. And hey everyone, welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yu, and I'm Rira Yu. And welcome to our discussion episode for our December 2023 book club pick, Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong. Um, this episode, as you may have noticed, is coming at you a little bit late. Um, um, like I mentioned last episode, be going through some family stuff, so that kind of got in the way of my regular producing workflow. So, um, hope you don't mind that we're coming at you a little bit later, but really excited to talk about this book um, with you. I really, um, I feel like there's a lot to go through. So, um, I guess should we just get started? Uh, yeah, sure. As always, in our monthly um, book club discussion episodes, um, we discuss our book pick in its entirety, including all plot-related um, spoilers and twists. So um, this is a spy murder mystery supernatural novel. So there are tons of things that you'll be spoiled on um, if you listen to this podcast without reading the book. Um, so this is, yeah, this is your warning. If you don't care about being spoiled on a murder mystery, I mean... You do you, but um, from here, from this point on, um, all spoilers are on the table. So um, with that, Rira, can you start us off, as always, with the book jacket description of Foul Lady Fortune? Yeah. It's 1931 in Shanghai, and the stage is set for a new decade of intrigue. Four years ago, Rosalind Lang was brought back from the brink of death, but the strange experiment that saved her also stopped her from sleeping and aging, and allows her to heal from any wound. In short, Rosalind cannot die. Now desperate for redemption from her traitorous past, she uses her abilities as an assassin for her country. Codename Fortune. But when the Japanese Imperial Army begins its invasion march, Rosalind's missions pivots. A series of murders is causing unrest in Shanghai, and the Japanese are under suspicion. Rosalind's new orders are to infiltrate foreign society and identify the culprits behind the terror plot before more of her people are killed. To reduce suspicion, however, she must pose as the wife of another nationalist spy— Orion Hong. And though Rosalind finds Orion's cavalier attitude and playboy demeanor infuriating, she is willing to work with him for the greater good. But Orion has an agenda of his own, and Rosalind has secrets that she wants to keep buried. As they both attempt to unravel the conspiracy, two spies soon find out. As they both attempt to unravel the conspiracy, the two spies soon find that there are deeper and more horrifying layers to this mystery than they ever imagined. Yeah, so... Even from that description, you get the sense that there are a ton of themes and genres being blended here. Um, we have like supernatural powers. We have espionage and intrigue. We have historical fiction. Um, and we also have like a sort of enemies to lovers type of situation. So um, definitely there's a lot of things going on in this book. And, you know, reading it, like I knew this was a spinoff of Chloe Gong's other um, duology in her Secret Shanghai, I guess, um, umbrella uh, but i didn't realize how much of a direct spinoff it was going to be because it's been a while since we read these violent delights um and i had forgotten about juliet tsai which is the juliet character in that story her cousins who are more prominent characters in this spinoff um and i kind of wished i did go back and read our violent ends which is the second book before starting this story because there are a lot of things that carry over um, but i do think that the book does a really good job um giving you the high-level beats on what the new world state is after the last duology. And it kind of helps that we're already pretty familiar as like a culture of what a Romeo and Juliet story is and how it ends, right? Um, yeah, so the Foul Lady Fortune series takes place four years after the events of Our Violent Ends. And like Marvin said, I kind of wish that I read um, our Violent Ends before starting this book, because even though you can technically read this book without uh, reading the previous novels, um, I think it really sets up Rosalind's character arc really well, because when we get to know her, she's she's a completely different person from 
who she was in the previous duology. And you do get hints of that. Like, I think Chloe Gong sets, you know, sets up that context pretty well. But um, I feel like if I had known Rosalind um, in her, like, before image, I feel like it would have made a more powerful impact on me as, like, with her with her character arc. Um, and, yeah, this is also... Th- so this book is also a Shakespeare adaptation, albeit a very loose adaptation of As You Like It. And um, As You Like It is a comedy as opposed to Romeo and Juliet, which is a tragedy. Yeah, and, I read the synopsis yeah, for As You tone. Like It, and it's like it involves Rosalind cross-dressing and like people falling in love with each other. And it seems like a much more like rom-com vibe than uh, what we get in this book. Yeah, yeah, like a lot, a lot more banter, a lot more playfulness, and you do see it in uh, Orion and Rosalind's uh, dynamic because uh, I feel like the previous duology, because you have, because it was like lovers to enemies to lovers, it, <laughs> <laughs> like it was a lot more of a contentious relationship and obviously if you've read Romeo and Juliet actually you don't even need to read Romeo and Juliet you probably know the ending <laughs> um so i'm guessing that our violent ends does not end very well cuz i've heard from people being very mad at Chloe Gong <laughs> after reading Our Violent Ends. They're like, how can you do this to my favorite? And I mean, I'm like, what did you expect? Yeah. It's <laughs> it's like when I watched um, Hadestown in, on Broadway. And Hadestown is a adaptation of the um, Orpheus and Eurydice myth. And in the final act, they're like walking out of hell. And then Orpheus turns around, breaking the rules. And even then I was like, oh, I thought this would end differently. But I should have known better because it's an adaptation of a very well-known myth. I guess because it's an adaptation, people hope for a happier ending. And because the characters are different, you do hope for a different outcome. That is true because they did give them a semi-happy ending in Wicked, which is an adaptation, right? They, they kind of hinted that the, the main characters are still alive out there. I've never watched Wicked oh, or the read the book. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So I oh, sorry. I, I don't know. I mean, it's been a number of years. I feel like I, I deserve that spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like uh, a lot of works have expiration dates when it comes to spoilers, like Star Wars. You know, if you don't know that Darth Vader is uh, Luke Skywalker's father, then I'm sorry. Like, you should... <laughs> like, it's been decades now. I feel like uh, the suspense is is gone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So just to set the stage a little bit more. So um, in the previous duology, um, These Violent Delights, Romeo is Roma Montagov, and he is part of the, um, the Russian gang faction in Shanghai. And then you have Juliet Tsai, who is uh, the heir to the Scarlet Gang. And Foul Lady Fortune, like I said, it takes place four years after the events. And uh, the Scarlet Gang is pretty much decimated. Uh, the I can never remember the Russian faction. What is the White Flowers? Yeah. And the Russian faction, the White Flowers, they're pretty much gone. I and mean- the National... I mean, they're not gone, gone, but I'm saying that their influence has definitely <laughs> yeah. lessened. I mean, so the historical setting in this book is really interesting. And like I mentioned, 1920s, 1930s, like the, the period between the world wars is a really fascinating setting for me because, you know, not only are the vibes cool, but the politics during this time are really interesting, right? This is the period between after World War One shook up all the world powers and everyone started to rebuild um, leading up to World War II because you know, for some reason, when you start from a blank slate um, with a lot of, I guess, xenophobic tension, um, fascism ends up happening in a lot of places. And so, you know, we're seeing the the um, we're seeing the building blocks of what World War II will become um, during this time period, where also the rules of war have changed. Right, machines, technology. There are like basically, it's never been easier to build things that kill people. Right, machine guns were introduced, automatic weapons, better aircraft, better you know bombs, um, and so mixed in with all these tensions, it also it's a it was a period of 
globalization and growth too. So there's a lot of really cool things going on. Um, and on top of all that, you know, we're, we're familiar with the pre-war American stories, right? The noirs uh, taking place in LA or New York. Um, but I don't think Western fiction has really explored, you know, pre-war China and specifically Shanghai during this time um, where um, people know that there was a civil war that happened and after World War II, the communists defeated the nationalists and took over the country. But what I think a lot of you know, Western readers specifically don't know is the fact that the Civil War was already well underway um, before Japan invaded. And you know, World War II only put the Civil War on pause. Um, and we did see rumblings of it in the original duology, um, These Dying Delights and Our Violent Ends, because... Obviously, um, the Scarlet Gang was aligned with the Chinese government, and then the White Flowers were aligned with the Russian governments, who, you know, during this time became the Soviet Union. So I really enjoyed how Chloe Gong built the setting um, because it was something that I haven't seen in in a lot of fiction that I've read, and the fact that she also overlaid on top of it like supernatural stuff was really cool too. Yeah, um, as someone who is not of Chinese descent, uh, a lot of the setting and history in this book, they were, you know, unfamiliar to me. I like I know like the hazy details, like I know that China had uh, their own civil war before the Japanese invaded and how that put things in pause. I know that Shanghai, um, they were affected a little bit differently from the other uh other cities when uh, revolution came. And I know how like Shanghai, it was a very cosmopolitan city where you had all of these foreigners with their own uh, agendas and they kind of coexisted in a really weird way. And um, yeah, like Shanghai was carved up essentially, right? You had the French concession, which was like run by the French government. And so Shanghai was a city that, and this was explored more in the, the first duology, I think, in this duology, the Western powers have kind of diminished a little bit because of the ongoing like global tensions. And the overall conflict has shifted to ideology, right? Which was like a what the communist revolutions across the world stem from is a clash in ideology. Yeah. And it's really interesting to uh, just explore the idea of like colonization and imperialism because, you know, imperialism is is terrible, but at the same time, like on the positive side, it does bring a lot of cultures together and it does bring a lot of um, a lot of innovation together. And it is like incredibly impressive that you have people in the city who are polygots are able to speak multiple languages and like the fashion, there's like fusion between cultures. And um, yeah, it's just like it's a very interesting setting where like where the community is wondering, okay, who is my enemy? Is it like, who do I prefer to rule over, um, rule the government? People who look like me or people who are f- t- technically foreigners and, and brought a lot of innovation into, um, innovation and technological advance- advances into this country. Um, and I don't think there's really a right answer on either sides, which makes the uh, conflict in this book really interesting because, like you said, it's it's a clash of ideologies. Yeah, I mean, I think um, that was probably more apparent in the first duology. In this duology, and you know, in general, I feel like imperialism is never really the right answer. Um, and in this iteration, like four years later, you know, running up to World War II, the the representation of imperialism is no longer Western powers, but Japanese power. Right. Japan has been expanding its, you know, imperial ambitions. And I thought it was really interesting reading how it wasn't just like a campaign of military conquest, but also information propaganda. Like Japan was um, the Japanese government was making an earnest effort to convince people that life would be better under Japanese rule. Um, because Japan will be able to, because Japan is, at this point is such a such a mighty military power, they're going to unite Asia. So it's better, like, instead of being a bunch of different Asian countries to fight against Western influence, let's be one Asia to fight against Western influence. And maybe it's just where my brain went, but, like, you know, working in Asian American, especially representational media advocacy over the years, it kind of, like, 
these beats sounded familiar, right? Like the idea that Asian Americans should band together to like to pull power, but the leaders should be a specific type of Asian is something that like we I definitely see mirrored in like today's Asian American discourse as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I just find it funny, like Japan's mindset of like, oh, we should all team up under like like under us. And it's just like, okay, well, like we all hate each other. <laughs> we all have, you know, bad blood on our hands. And I also think it's quite funny how um you know, you have like the nationalists versus the communists, but because the Japanese are um, slowly taking over, they're like, okay, the enemy of my enemy is also my enemy. <laughs> so they all like, they're just like, okay, like we, we have issues, but this is, this is a bigger, this is a bigger deal. This is a bigger enemy. So um, it's yeah. interesting how like the characters who are like nationalists and com- communist spies with different agendas, they have to like team up uh, sometime in like really weird, reluctant situations where it's just like, OK, well, like we need this information, but also like we don't want your leaders to know about it. So can we keep it like low key? Like it's. It's a very fun dynamic. Yeah, I mean, it helps that our the agents that we follow on both sides are also family and siblings and are in it for... And it, I think it's really interesting because, you know, we follow a lot of ground-level agents in this story who are... Well, they, they're serving their you know, respective teens for different reasons and different ideologies, right? But that they're first and foremost... Um, priority is protecting the people and that's kind of the thing with like the civil war is like both sides have i I mean it's a battle of ideologies right it's it's similar to you know like our two-party system here like we have different ideologies on what the country should look like except like with much more um armed conflict right but i think in western media we always portray the nationalists as the good guys and the communists as the bad guys, or the capitalists as the good guys and the communists as the bad guys. Um, but I mean, communist revolutions don't sprout out out of nowhere. Um, and if you look at the history, like of like even like martial law, I'm sure like you know Korea is the same way. Like our quote unquote good guy nationalist like governments were also pretty corrupt up there. Like there's a reason why bad blood spread amongst the people, right? And so. I thought Chloe Gong did a really good job of like never really taking sides on who's right and who's wrong because ultimately that's not important um, because ideals can be corrupted. People in power will always try to find ways to hold on to their power and to do things that benefit them the most. And the, and the common people, they just want to survive, okay? Like <laughs> they really don't, like most of them don't care who's going to be in power. They just want to be able to make yeah. Their livelihoods. Yeah, definitely. Because um, practically speaking, like no matter who's in charge, like it doesn't really affect them that much. It's just, it just changes who they pay, pay their taxes to. Um, yeah, I mean, like the previous duology, you have all these gangs who like have their own territories and they're collecting like protection money. And you have to wonder, like, were people safer? Were their lives better under the gangs versus, like, now with, like, the nationalists and the communists? Like, the people in the lower rungs, they they don't care because it's always going to be the people in power who are, you know, fighting over power. And there's always going to be an abuse of power. Yeah. And the fact that the Scarlet Gang from the first duology is kind of folded and becomes an ally to the nationalist government um, and, you know, the the Russian game became part of the, the Soviet government. I feel like that. So I don't know if this is like, I don't have any historical um, knowledge of this period, but I have seen this happen in Chinese dramas. So I'm going to assume that this is just something that something that really happened was when power was consolidated, um, you know, the the underground shadow government essentially became legitimized through the new governments that formed after the, um, you know, after the last empire, the last Chinese empire was overthrown by the, essentially nationalist party, right? Yeah, yeah, pretty much. 
Uh, I really like the way Chloe opened up the book. Like you start off like with a bang. You have Rosalind uh, come in and come in with an assassination. And it's it's such a, you know, it was such it was such a fun way to introduce her character and her abilities because once, you know, she got her throat slit and you're like, oh shit, like she <laughs> like she she got killed, even though you read the jackets jacket summary and you know that she has like this ability to to heal from whatever wounds she gets. It was still like, oh man, that happened. Yeah. Chloe <laughs> does a really good job writing. Like the, I, I forgot how well she does action because I remember being really impressed with the action from um these Vine Delights as well. And it's a very like, you know, there's a lot of really cool spy craft going on, but the action scenes were, were really a lot of fun to read. And um, I really did enjoy Rosalind's character um, as someone who is, you know, she essentially is still reeling from being being betrayed and reeling from, you know, her betrayal of her family and her her clan, as well as being betrayed by her lover, who turned out to be the big bad of the duology. And so she's on this path of like she's on this path where she she's seeking redemption through protecting the city that like she feels like she owes something to. And she does so by becoming a Guomindang um, or Nationalist Party um, covert operative, you know, taking out foreign, essentially former White Flower members who are now foreign agents, right, supporting the Soviet Union, who are in who are in turn. Supporting the Communist Party. Yeah, and she did get a mission once where she had to assassinate. Um, was it? I don't know if it was like a nationalist, but it, it was like it was a student Communist Party like kind of leader. Yeah, yeah. So she had to uh, assassinate. It was a scholar. It was a scholar. Yeah, it was a scholar. He was a student, and uh, she was just like, "Why are you sending me to assassinate someone like this?" Like. Yeah, she like this she is has, not a big bad enemy. <laughs> yeah, I think um she definitely has like a code and because she understands how how things can be manipulated, right? She she refuses to be like a political pawn um at least overtly. And so she refuses to do like part of her requirements as an agent is she refuses to do political assassinations. Um she will assassinate like foreign enemies of the state, but going after like domestic essentially activists like that messed her up so bad that her handler decided not to send her on those missions anymore yeah and it's interesting that her sister celia is working for the communists you know like we we mentioned how you have siblings in opposite uh opposite parties and um it's really interesting how celia is actually like very devoted to the communist cause. Whereas Rosalind, I feel like she just kind of fell into the nationalist um, plans. Like it was just easier, I guess, just having someone like point and tell her who to assassinate. And also just like uh, having someone like her handler, Dao Feng, actually treat her with respect. Like I feel like she fell more for that part Instead of like the actual political cause of the Nationalist Party. Yeah, that was interesting that um, we follow two agent pairs in the story. We follow Orion and Rosalind, who are a team of Nationalist spies. And we also follow Orion's brother, Oliver, and Rosalind's sister, Celia, who is a team on the communist side. But both Celia and Oliver join the Communist Party because they believe in fighting for the common people. They they are essentially true believers of the cause. Um, whereas both Orion and Rosalind kind of fell into their positions. Um, like you said, um, they I don't think they're as committed to like the nationalist cause, which is, you know, like patriotism, Western aligned capitalism, and the status quo. Um, they're doing it for more personal reasons, right? Like Rosalind wants to use her skills to defend the stability of her city, her country. And Orion's doing this because he needs to protect his father's honor, right? He needs to protect yeah, because his father the Hong was family. Outed. Yeah, the Hong the Hong family is has been under suspicion of like being Japanese sympathizers, right? And so 
Orion seeks to kind of protect his family name because his brother has notoriously become a communist agent, right? Yeah, and I do like the fact that they both know of each other. Like, they both know of each other's works, but they don't actually personally know each other, and they're kind of forced into this mission where they're when they have to like pretend to be a married couple it's a it's a good premise i will say though that i expected more from the uh pretending to be married couple angle i expected like cuz the thing that i love about that trope is the whole like domestic fluff and seeing seeing them like put their guard down when they're at home and also um, like the whole one bed trope as well. But uh, Orion is sleeping on the couch and I'm like, okay, well, I feel like there weren't that many opportunities for them to like pretend to be a married couple. I mean, there were like, there were instances where they had to like make out to, to like prove that they actually did like each other in front of in front of their employees but i fe- i felt like i was missing that seasoning of See, of intimacy i didn't mind that because like one of my favorite shows um in the past couple of years was the americans which is kind of a similar setup you have a a team of soviet agents posing as a all-american family and couple um living in like i think the midwest or somewhere or was it dc like somewhere in america um and when they're at home, they're talking about the mission. They're kind of co-workers at home and not really like they pretend to be a couple, but it's not that's not like their primary relationship. And I think, you know, if this genre was more of like a comedy type of story that would. But I think as like a story that takes spycraft and espionage seriously, I, I thought it fit. And I thought there was a right amount of like. There is still like sexual and like romantic tension between the characters, um, but they all, they're also there for a job, right? They're not, they don't have to pretend to be a couple at home. I think Orion is doing it to get a rise out of, out of Rosalind, but it's like they're coworkers. They're not actually a couple, right? Yeah, but it's also a slow burn romance. So I, I think it was a little bit too slow for me. And um, it also seemed that Orion was way more into Rosalind than the other way around, which makes sense because Rosalind is demisexual. She needs to get to know the person before actually forming some kind of attraction to them. And also it makes sense because she was deeply betrayed by her former lover and she has this fear of loving again and it leading to heartbreak and betrayal. Like, I get all of that. And I kind of wish I read the previous duology to get more of that, uh, to get more of that context and on like a more detailed level. But I was just like, man, I just want there to be a little bit more intimacy Um like, I don't know, like maybe, maybe if like their boss or a coworker like followed them home or they're like, hey, like, let's let's have lunch or whatever. And then they have to like scramble to actually, you know, pretend to be a married couple for realsies. I mean, they do um, that at work and they do that when they're out and about. Um, I just yeah, I guess I, I didn't really mind that it wasn't like they weren't role playing at home as much. I mean, I'm not saying they they should have role played at home. I'm just saying that I I wish there was more uh, there were more instances of them pretending to mm. be a married couple because I felt like they really weren't that intimate at work other than like those two times where they like made out and pretended to fight. And I was like, mm, I don't know. Like I kind of wish there was a little bit more uh, on the romance side, but the romance is not. I feel like the romance is not the main plot. It's, it's not, kind yeah. of like a, yeah, it's kind of like an extra dressing to um to uh, to, to the espionage story. So I'm like I I don't mind it so much. It's just like a personal preference for me. Um and I did really like their banter. I thought I thought Rosalind was like this grumpy um cynical girl who really paired well with Orion's just like, I'm going to fuck around and find out and, and you know, really get a rise out of her. Yeah, I mean, they're two very different types of agents, right? Like, Rosalind is a weapon that is given the target 
to kill. And she does that in the most efficient way possible. Whereas Orion is kind of a more traditional spy where he goes and extracts information by, you know, being a playboy, right? So I think the the dynamic is definitely there for like for really cool interactions. Um and I did really love the fact that Chloe Gong kept the spy part of the story grounded, right? It was a story where they're infiltrating a Japanese-aligned workplace to extract information, to gather evidence, and to kind of figure out if there is treason going on. Um, but it's not like, oh, you must infiltrate a enemy base and fight your way to steal the secret plans. Like, it wasn't like a super spy story, even though the characters in question, the spies in question, are literal super spies. Um, I, I, I like the restraint that Chloe did to like keep you know, the, the spy part, um, like grounded like that. Yeah. And also in the background, you get stories about uh, a serial killer, a possible serial killer, because there's a bunch of Chinese people who are getting killed with uh, chemical poisons. And, uh, they think that it's the Japanese, but they're also like, maybe it's the communists. We don't know. So, um, having that bit of mystery was interesting um, I love I love a good deal of murder mystery, you know, like who did it and who's the serial killer. And um, yeah, I like the twists that Chloe set up yeah. for, for that storyline. <laughs> and, you know, a murder mystery mixed in with political intrigue and like alliances and loyalties. It was a really satisfying not to untangle, right? Because at all points, everyone involved is questioning everyone else's loyalty, right? Rosalind is questioning why she was sent here to be Orion's mission partner because she's an assassin. She's not a spy. But Orion's family is implicated in Japanese sympathy, so maybe he's her actual target. Um, At the same time, as they unravel the mystery, all sides are being implicated. The nationalists, the communists, and the Japanese. And it's like, who... Who is actually behind everything? Um, I really enjoyed how all, all that was playing out and how, like, and honestly, how everyone's investigating. So we follow not just Orion and Rosalind and then Celia and um, Oliver, but we also follow Silas and Phoebe, who I guess are two names also taken from the As You Like It story, right? Yep. Um, Silas is Orion's, like, schoolmate, who is a triple agent, um, a Guomindang agent embedded in the communists who is then re-embedded into the police force. And then Phoebe, who is like Oliver and Orion's like naive little sister, who's kind of just like a, a, a whirlwind of energy and um, inserts herself into the mission, even though she is not officially affiliated. Um, although in the stinger at the end, we find out that she is like pretty involved in the story. Um, yeah. Like from like, from like the story you you get the feeling that like she's she's like the nosy little sister who's like an amateur sleuth and just I was can't... surprised by that stinger. I was pretty like what? Yeah, I, 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 yeah, the stinger is I mean, I guess our first spoiler in this episode is that Phoebe turns out to be priest who is uh an assassin for the communists. Yeah, and she is Rosalind's counterpart who is like a Sniper with supernatural skill at hitting her targets. Yeah, so I was like, huh. Which is a really Maybe I reveal. should reread those chapters to see where, like, where she could have been pre... I, I don't know. Like, I felt like it was such an abrupt surprise for me that it I have did to, make like, sense. I did go and back see. and see. And, I mean, it, the other twist, I guess, that we can talk about, like, at least tease here, is that Orion turns out to be the serial killer. And, like, if you go back and see, the story is set up so that, um, you know, it's switching between different point of views. Like, every single character that we've named has a point of view um, in the story. And so, because we're switching between everyone's point of view, like, there are times when we lose track of other characters. And so, it gives Chloe, like, a lot of latitude to, like insert like this is a time when we weren't paying attention to phoebe but she was definitely murking fools in that police station um and we weren't we were following Rosalind as she was going around at night but around definitely murdering people in the streets uh during this time um i think for me it was also super surprising because there was that one chapter and this was like chloe gong with like a masterful misdirect where phoebe was acting jealous that Silas was more interested in 
priest than her, right? Yeah, yeah. I thought that was pretty funny uh, looking back on it, hindsight. Um, and also what's interesting is that one of the POVs is from the killer's perspective. So you'll get chapters where the killer is stalking um, their victim in like, like on the streets. And you think it's a totally different person. Uh, you think it's a stranger, but it but the twist is that it's Orion who has been the killer. So having that misdirect was pretty well done, in my opinion, especially since Orion does not have any memory of doing any of those killings because the... Yeah, he's a sleeper whole, agent, essentially. Yeah, he's a yeah. sleeper agent. He's a mentoring candidate. Yeah, and the twist of his mom being the one who did all the experiments, I was like, I was not expecting that. I don't know how I feel about that, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I feel like it, it was a little deus ex machina in that this was a reveal that had not been set up at all. It was more like, a, oh, like it puts everything in perspective and does add some interesting themes, which is the relationship between science and nationalism and war, right? Because scientific discovery, scientific progress has really been aided or fueled by by war, right? Like the atomic bomb, rocket technology, um, communication technology, and the fact that science has really no loyalty except to science. Uh, I think that was interesting. Those are some interesting things to throw into the story, um, especially in one where we have super soldiers created by like mystery serums, right? Uh, but it was a little abrupt, but I think it did fit in the time period because this, this was also something that was happening during this time, right? I'm reminded of like the the Nazi scientist that defected to America and ended up becoming like like one of the heads of NASA, right? Yeah, it is a common thing because scientists they need money to run their experiments. So with Orion's mother, uh, she originally got money from the Nationalist Party, and then once those funds dried up, she started to get money from the Japanese. And it's like you said, science have no loyalty. It depends on. <laughs> who's able to fund the experiments. And it's, you know, it, it makes me wonder, like, why she used her son as, as like, a subject for her testing. It, it was just like, is it because it's she was a mad just scientist. there? I feel like it's just a mad yeah, scientist. Yeah, it just felt like a little bit weird. Path, like, mad scientist with, like, like the social path mad scientists who like can justify everything. With, At like, least with Rosalind, like with her powers, like she had scarlet fever and she was gonna freaking die. So Celia took her to um to to a lab that, you know, I don't know if they had a history of of curing people miraculously, but uh that's how she got like her superpowers. And I felt like that that seemed that seemed to make more sense to me, whereas like with Orion, I was like, "Oh, your mom gave you Captain America super serum." It just, <laughs> right. it just seems a little bit weird. <laughs> like I mentioned, our our spies in the story are super spies, and that's not just Rosalind. We later discover, like, once Orion is revealed to be like the the killer, um, that he has super strength, and he is literally Captain America, which I thought was pretty cool. Yeah, uh, we haven't talked about this character, but uh, we have Eliza Montagova, who is the younger sister of Roma Montagov. And uh, apparently in the previous duology, she was kidnapped. So she was kidnapped when she was like a teenager. And that was like a whole thing with with the two warring gangs. And now she is an agent for the communists. Yeah, Elisa Montagova was actually probably one of my favorite characters in this story. Oh, she was definitely my favorite yeah. out of out of the cast. <laughs> because I think out of all the all the other characters with their own agendas, her she just wants to live her life. She just wants to be like a teenage girl who reads her magazines and like just you know can can just be. But because of who she is, because of what she looks like, because because of her past she has she and she finds she finds herself aligned with the communists because they're the only people who a will take her and b will offer her any sense of protection or even community right i um, mean she was the princess she was pretty much the princess of the uh white flowers so obviously like the communist party in shanghai at this time most of them are from the white flowers so of course like it makes more sense for her to align with the communists but like you said she seems to just want 
to live her life. And I do like the fact that she, like, no offense to to Rosalind, but, like, Elisa seemed to do most of the work. Like yeah, heavy she's lifting. a really good she's a really good spy, and she you know she can speak all these languages. And I did like my favorite thing about um, her interactions with like essentially every other character is like her like in the entire time you can see her like rolling her eyes and saying you guys are all idiots. Like yeah, yeah. Like when Rosalind assassinates uh, one of her coworkers in like the bathroom of like the dance hall. Like she didn't think. She didn't think about like wh- like where am I gonna put this body? Like what am I gonna say to my other coworkers on like his disappearance and whatnot? And then uh, Elisa just happens to be there. And she's like, what the fuck did you do? Like, what were you going to do with this body? Okay, I need you to create a distraction so I can take care of this body. It's like one of the first moments where they like team up to. Um, yeah. Yeah. And and I was just like, okay, she like got rid of the body. And then like the second mission that they do, to, they work together is like to get um, this secret file that was like in one of the uh, offices. In the ambassador's office, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, Rosalind and Orion are doing, like, their newlywed, like, I can't believe that you cheated on me. Like, they're doing this whole charade while Elisa is actually stealing the file. And I'm like, she's doing all of the spy work. What are you guys doing? <laughs> like, <laughs> what have you guys been doing? Like, she she's the one who's, like, pretty much making sure everything is running smoothly. And she's not even from your party. So that was like an interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, she beat. does. Uh, I mean, Rosin does take advantage of the fact that Elisa, she knows that Elisa's loyalties are malleable. Um, and the fact that they have like history too. like Elisa is also living in hiding, right? She is, she takes, she, she has, I mean, I want to say a fake name, but it's so pretty close. Like her, her fake Lisa, name is Elisa, Elisa um, Roma, Romanova, which I guess it's a play on her brother's name, Roma Montagov. Yeah, I, I really did enjoy. Like, I thought she was secretly the best character. Like, she definitely did most of the spy work. Um, she discovered the truth way before everyone else. Um, and I like how her arc ends in a in a way that's pretty true to her character, which is like she really has no loyalty to the two ideologies. She would prefer the communists to be in charge because then her life wouldn't be in constant danger. But ultimately, like I think she her motivation comes from the same place as Rosalind's, which is her brother gave his life to protect the city. And so she's going to honor that by like doing the same however she can. And she ends the series with the only copy of the super serum the successful super serum left right so i'm really curious to see how that goes uh, i know the next book um foul heart huntsman i think is what it's called is already out so i, I might just pick that book up and just yeah i might just, just like pick that, that up yeah. like right away before we uh read our january book club pick um <laughs> because i have not picked up our january book club pick yet yeah another of my favorite characters is lao lao who is the um i guess the Landlord of Rosalind, who is, I guess, not exactly her handler, but close to like her like domestic handler, right? She knows that Rosalind is an is an assassin. She knows that Rosalind can't sleep and can't be hurt, and kind of, but still decides to be her mother or her auntie. Um, and I think it's really cool. Um, La La is actually a, um, I think it's a northern version of Grandma. And it's actually what my mm. wife calls her maternal grandmother's la la. So I thought that was a really cool, like, like a Leonardo DiCaprio point moment where I was like, I know what that means. I know where that comes from. <laughs> I kind of wish that Lao Lao, like, didn't know about Rosalind's uh, whole spy situation. <laughs> like, I wish she was just, like, a caring, you know, maternal figure who had no, like, who has no idea that she's a spy and just, like, happens to barge in from time to time to like make her meals. I thought it was a more interesting dynamic this way. I, I feel like that would have like made that would have created like situations where uh Orion and Rosalind would like pretend to be a couple inside the house. It's just like, oh no, Lalo is here. Like oh, fuck, like I feel like that would have created those moments. And also I just like love the idea of like Rosalind churning up in her apartment like poisoned and Lala was just like, what the fuck just like what what the fuck just happened? And um, 
Like, I, I feel like that would have been pretty cool to have someone to have someone in the cast who has no idea, no idea what's going on because everybody is like a spy or um, or, you know, they they're aligned with the party somehow. So that was just like a personal thing. But of course, it still works with Lao Lao <laughs> being the character that she is. I have no problems with her. Yeah, um, I enjoyed you know. it as written. So. Yeah, um, so the book ends in a cliffhanger, obviously, because this is a duology. And the cliffhanger is that Orion, you know, he he gets left behind as as an experiment. I don't yeah. know how else to describe <laughs> it, but... Yeah, Orion yeah. is, um, in order to buy Rosalind time to escape, um, is left behind and is given, I guess, a... Another version of the serum, which causes his, I guess, serial killer zombie persona to become dominant, right? So now he's fully a, like, a Manchurian candidate, like, activated zombie Yeah, he killer. went from Captain yeah. America to Winter Soldier. Like. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and we find Rosalind because of... Um, so we didn't really go into the whole, like how the whole spy mission broke down. But essentially in the process of like busting the sea green newspaper company that they're, they've been embedded in and we're investigating. Um, Rosalind decides to pin the killings on one of their coworkers and not Orion. Um, because at that point she's kind of conflicted, right? Like Orion, she caught, she catches Orion in the act. They have like a super spy fight. Um, Orion comes to and pleads with her, like she, they need to figure out what's going on. So in order, to, in order to buy more time to figure that out, she pins the crime on one of the coworkers. And during the bust, everything blows up. Um, and then her identity as fortune is revealed to the public. And so at the end of the story, Rosalind's identity, because up until now, she's actually been operating not only as like an Asian, but under a different identity, right? Like Jeannie. Um, Jeannie Mead. Yeah. Yeah, so a Janie Mead who uh, was educated in America. So, like, one of the things that she has to do is, you know, pretend to be an American when she talks in English. And I think Chloe Gong did a really good job with uh, showing when people change languages and how, like, have how speaking in a different language leaks out certain information because in English you have gendered uh, subjects, but in in Chinese, like that's a little bit different. Yeah. Um. So I thought that was like pretty pretty neat. But I do wish that Rosalind slipped up more in her Jamie Mead's <laughs> identity because you just wanted more like goof up. I just want right? her to like. I, I just wanted to slip up because accent training is really really hard, and you know she's someone who was educated in France, and I just wanted it to be like one of those situations. There'll be situations where she'll, I don't know, say miles instead of like kilometers. I mean, in term, she'll say like kilometers instead of miles. And it's just like, wait, aren't you American? Like, like, I mean, I why feel like she did slip like up that? a few times in the story, though. I feel like, well, like internally, she'll be like, oh, damn, like I, I should act more like this. But I don't think it really showed uh, outwardly. Mm. Um, I, I just feel like because she's an assassin her like espionage skills should not have been as high. So I kind of wish I saw more like well more I mean, mistakes. That character I mean, that's explained in that first chapter though, whereas she shows that her assassinations aren't quick and violent or aren't like smash and grab. Like her her assassinations are embedded. She infiltrates, she finds ways to get to her targets unaware. She prefers poisons and she kind of uses her social skills to getting close for the kill right so i feel like yeah. that does explain how like her social espionage skills are pretty decent right yeah yeah i i also wish there was like more instances where um you know orion takes the reins in in a lot of like these social situations be like ros like him be like are you a spy or not why is your social skills so bad or like, why are you acting like this? Like, th like, we're supposed to get close to this person. And then her kind of having 
um, this realization that like, oh, okay, he's not just a fuck boy. Like he actually knows what the... he's doing. And she does get that, but I just wish that there were like more instances where like she's like, okay, like he's actually good at his job. Mm-hmm. And I should really watch my back. I feel like there there was only there was too little of that in terms of like their um in terms of that arc because they're both trying to like keep tabs on each other. So I don't know. Like I feel like there should have been more tension, more conflict between Rosalind and Orion. Yeah. I mean, I, I think there was just enough, but I mean that's that's just me though. So um I will say that this book is very long. It is 520 something pages and uh, I was very daunted by like starting this book because I was like oh my god it's so long and it's only like half of a story because you have to read the second book so <laughs> I, thought I was it just was like a pretty, am I I thought it was a pretty breezy read though. I, I got through it actually pretty you quickly. say you say it's breezy but for me it was actually like quite hard to get through the first 150 pages Mm. i mean for me it's usually it it i'm a fast reader but usually the first 50 pages like when you're getting to know the characters getting to know the setup um it's like really slow for me because i try to absorb as much as i can and then once i get to know them i like speed read like that's how i am as a reader so once I got to like the first 20% of the book, I was like, okay, kind of know the group now. I kind of know what their missions are. I can sort of pick things up and start reading a little bit faster. But I do feel like the book kind of sagged in like in like the second act because I was just like, okay, when are things going to like get going but like that's where like all the misunderstanding stuff and the stuff that you said you wanted more of was happening though i wanted more of it but there was like but because i didn't get more of that it felt slow you know what i mean like i felt like mm. there should have been more tension and conflicts between the characters i feel like there should have been more uh, more scenes with silas because he's a triple agent like they were just like I was just like, this is a very big cast, and I kind of wish I got a little bit more from everyone or less from certain characters so that there should have been, like, more for the main characters, um, if that makes sense. But then once the, once Act 3 started, I was like, okay, we're, we're going. It's like a freaking train that's about to, like, go off of a cliff. Like, we, like, I really liked Act 3, but uh, in terms of pacing, I felt like Act 2... It was a little bit slow. It took me a while to get um, to get to know the characters, and um, I like I really want to commend Chloe for having a big cast because the moment when everybody is in the same room, it's like seven people, right? So it's like, how did you write a scene where seven people are just talking, like keeping tabs on like who said what and where they're sitting, and like keeping track of all of their agendas like i thought that was really impressive but again it took me a while to uh get to know everyone and then i felt like there wasn't enough conflict in like the in like within like the first half of the book but then the last like last 50 pages last like 50 to 80 pages it like really took off but that's like a very small criticism in in my opinion um again this is a duology so the pacing is going to be quite different i feel like if i read the second book and then like compare like if i like made a graph on when on when certain beats happened i would be like okay the pacing is just right but because i only read the first half of the duology it's hard for me to gauge if the pacing is okay, if that makes sense. I mean, that's fair, the way that you explained it. Um, I had, like, a great time reading this book. I think maybe because I was familiar with the setting beforehand. 
the first, you know, the first third where you're kind of building the world and kind of setting up the factions came pretty easily to me. Like I didn't need to, you know, process as much. And like I mentioned, I really like the the spycraft part of the story, which is like that second half, right? Where they're kind of infiltrating, they're figuring out what's happening, they're trying to balance their cover and their mission. And like for me, it was like I couldn't put it down. Like I was just like into it from the first page to the last. So I guess, you know, everyone has different things they look for in books and different things that that grab them and, and things that bounce off. So um, I think I definitely really like, even the parts that were slow were still very compelling to me. So, but you know, that that's just me too. Also, this is a random comment, but um, this book did remind me of Spy Family just because of the premise of, of like, oh yeah, we should, definitely pretend to be married and uh, one of the the bride being an assassin and the husband being like a high-level spy yeah <laughs> thought that was pretty <laughs> and maybe that's where it comes comes from like high, spy family has a it's, spy family is a comedy it's like it's a gag comedy really in, it's a, yeah it's a straight up comedy yeah. i feel like even though foul lady fortune is inspired slash loosely adapted from a comedy it's not leaning that hard into comedy <laughs> yeah so if you're looking for spy family hijinks you're, you're not gonna really find it here um instead you get like banter uh romantic tension the chemistry is pretty good between the leads i I really enjoy their their relationship and how you know orion slowly but surely breaks through uh rosalind's um defenses yeah yeah and i don't know if it was just me but were there hints that roma was alive roma and juliet because at the very end of the book uh was it elisa like elisa gets like a note and it says JM. So I was like, Juliet Montagova? Like, are we, like, have they managed to survive somehow? See, this is something that I can't make a call on because I did not read that second book. Yeah, exactly. But I wouldn't put so it I'm past like, it. So maybe, I don't know. I was like, oh, did they dig up the bodies? Like, was it truly them? Because <laughs> I don't believe in stuff until, you know, I actually yeah. see the bodies because I've consumed a lot of media where... People fake their own deaths. And I'm like, mm. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's, it sounds possible um, for the people who are devastated with our violent ends. I guess it gives them a little bit of hope that yeah. their favorite couple might still be alive. So I feel like what I need to do is I need to write, I need to read our violent ends first, and then I'll read Foul Heart Huntsman. And I believe that Elisa Montego was also um, a character in one of the novellas that chloe wrote let me actually double check oh yeah 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 she said it was like a 1.5 novella that (laughs) like gaps between those two um duologies yeah yeah i do Um, think it's very interesting how uh rosalind is in is in both duologies because uh you have rosaline who is like uh, romeo's like former lover and juliet's cousin yeah and Julia's cousin. And then you have um, Rosalind in As You Like It. So the names are so similar. And <laughs> I thought it was really clever for Chloe to merge them into one character. I wonder if this was her plan all along. Um, I, I, I feel like I, I heard her say that like it came to her. Gr- the idea came up while she was writing Our Violent Delights. And she was like, hmm, maybe I can make another uh, story out of this character. And I did hear from other people who read the first duology that Rosalind was a character they fucking hated. They were like, she's so annoying. She's so naive. She's sleeping with the enemy, quite literally. Uh, I freaking hate her. And (laughs) so a lot of people like going into this duology, they're like, how am I going to like Rosalind? She's going to be the main character. And I thought it was really interesting that people thought that way because I really liked Rosalind from the get-go. Yeah, I am like one of my favorite character archetypes is the like the tortured redemption seeker, right? The person who like fucked up big time and is seeking any ways to make amends, but also no longer takes care of themselves, no longer thinks they deserve happiness. And so like it's a type of character that I've always find myself um, enjoying in, in stories like this. 
Yeah. And uh, I mean, like we didn't really mention it, but um, I do like the diversity of sexualities in this book. Um, I think it's really rare to have a main character in a romance where they are demisexual, because I feel like this could have easily been like, a oh, they feel an instant in- attraction, you know, but with Rosalind being demisexual, she's like, I need to get to know this guy first. Like, I, I understand that he is handsome, but I am not one of those people who are like, I want to jump someone just because they're good looking. Um, and I do like the fact that Celia is a transgender woman and she has a romance with Oliver and Orion is bisexual, which I found pretty hilarious because like there's a scene with his dad who was just like, oh, he like fucks around with everyone. He's a hot mess. And I'm like, not to be stereotypical, but um that's like one of my favorite archetypes in media where you have <laughs> where and- you have the chaotic bisexual who is also a hot mess. And I don't know, he just like was such a fun character to read because yeah. yeah. And how that all aspect. of that is seamlessly integrated to the story where we like Chloe never spends time to explain things. It's just it just is. It's just these characters are who they are and like there's no need to dwell on that. Right? That's Yeah, it's and also like, this yeah. is like a historical historical fiction so it's like oh people were gay people were trans back then like they didn't just you know spring up in the 20th and 21st century it was actually like um like they existed a long time ago and i like how seamlessly she she put those elements in like marvin said yeah Chloe Gone, another one of those authors who published their first book in college. That makes us all feel very old and unaccomplished. Uh, but God, she writes good books. She just she she definitely <laughs> got better with her prose. Because I will say, comparing uh, these violent delights with uh, Foul Lady Fortune, her writing definitely got better. Her sentence construction, um, I don't know. It just like I don't know how to describe it, but it it's definitely more elevated. And I got, like, I was able to picture the action much better this time around. So, not to say that she was a horrible writer before, but I am saying that she has matured as a writer. And it's always exciting for me to see that because, um, you know, we've been around for so long. So, seeing (laughs) young writers grow, it's it's a privilege. Yeah, and, you know, writing a spy mystery thriller requires a lot more, you know, careful story construction than like a story about gang wars, right? Where it's more the conflict is more easy to parse. So even with the last minute reveal of the scientist mother being the big bad, it was a really interesting and exciting spy thriller to read. So I did see this hilarious TikTok from uh Simon and Schuster. I think it was Simon Teen actually. And it was, they had like a poster with all of these pictures and like red threads going around. Like, you know how like in crime shows you have like, you know, the serial killer map being like, okay, if this is the suspect, blah, 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 blah. So you have um, the Simon Teen staff member go through the beats of the entire book being like, okay, so this person is a spy for this faction and they're investigating this, like, this string of serial killings but it turns out that uh, like he was actually the killer so like they go through the entire book within like maybe like 10 seconds <laughs> and, and and then they're like okay did you get all of that and then the camera cuts to chloe gong just sitting in the chair and being like uh <laughs> and i just thought it was so funny because there's a lot of things that happens happen in this book and uh chloe gong acknowledging that there's a lot of things going on and that some people might be confused. Uh, I think it's, I think it was quite, uh, was quite funny. Uh, yeah. Cause I definitely did have to write down stuff that happened because I was, <laughs> I was just like, there's too many things happening. Let's see if I can remember where everybody is. Yeah. But if you're reading it in one go, like Marvin, you probably don't need to do that. <laughs> like I took breaks in between. So Yeah. All right. Well, with that, um, do you have any final thoughts on Foul Lady Fortune? 
before we call it? Uh, no, other than I need to read the second book. Yeah. So that I have my curiosity. Uh, I want to you know, know what happens. I feel it. like I was reading the synopsis for Foul, um, Foul Heart Huntsman. And it does seem like it's a different type of story now. We move past the, um, I mean, if there's still like pre-war, civil war intrigue, but um, because because Rosalind's identity is now exposed, she can't operate as like a covert agent anymore. So um, it'll be interesting because I want to see how they save Orion. Um, I, I am invested in that relationship now. So um, yeah. Um, and the good thing I'm is- I'm sure his siblings book, are also very invested in, <laughs> in saving him as well. Yeah. And the good thing is the second book is already out. So we don't need to wait to go read it. Um, but yeah, with that, that'll do it for our discussion of Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong. If you have any thoughts about anything we discussed or your own thoughts about the book, uh, please let us know um, either on our Goodreads forums or on our Discord if you are a Patreon subscriber. Um, we always love to hear your thoughts on our podcasts as well. Um, I guess before we go, um, Rira, can you remind us what our book club pick is for January 2024? Yes, we are reading Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City by Jane Wong, and it is a memoir about Jane's upbringing in Atlantic City. It explores what it means to be part of the Asian American working class, and um, it explores uh, themes like addiction, uh, gambling, and the American dream. Is it real? Is it not real? What happens when you lose it all? Um, this is our first nonfiction in a very long while, so it is a great change of pace for us. Yeah, so um, I hope you all read along with us. Um, if you have finished the book and have thoughts to share, um, please let us know, again, on Goodreads or on our Discord server. Um, we do love to share your feedback um, on our book picks in our discussion episodes whenever possible. So. Um, yeah let us know and with that that'll do it for this episode of Books and Boba thank you so much for listening to our discussion of Foul Lady Fortune by Chloe Gong and we'll see you all next time bye everybody bye thanks for listening to Books and Boba this podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Ri Ryu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts, part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.